Thank you, ladies. <clears throat> uh, last year, as uh, season one of the amazing race Canada was being played out on the TV, I was talking uh, to our daughter Jody in Winnipeg, and she asked if we were watching. And uh, we should be, she said, and we should be cheering for the father and son team from Winnipeg, Tim and Tim Haig. And she uh, informed us that uh, Tim's wife, Cheryl, who is here with us tonight, was a friend of hers. And so we almost felt like we knew these people. And so we immediately, you know, every time it was on, we would, as, as much as possible, we would watch. And so we started to cheer. And it was great to see how they caught up from being behind a little bit and passing and going to the front. So that was really neat. And... Uh, uh, Another, another connection that we had, we had the privilege of meeting their daughter, Jordana, and Winkler at uh, the high school grad there. She was a friend of our grandson, so that was kind of neat, too. So we had this connection, and uh, I know, remember Jody saying, you know, you, you'll like them. They're, they're nice people, and we found out they were. <laughs> so we'd like to welcome you here tonight, and uh, it's a small world sometimes, isn't it? And as we were beginning to plan for this weekend, of course, uh, uh, I was talking to Jody again, and I asked her if there's somebody in Winnipeg she knew or maybe connected to their church there that we could invite as a speaker for an event like this. And, and she, it was her suggestion. She says, well, why don't you invite Tim Haig? He would probably come. So we got in touch with Tim, and he graciously agreed to, to come and uh, be with us tonight to accept our invitation to be here. And this gave us the, uh, the reason for our motto that you've probably seen on the posters and on the bulletin inserts. Uh, the motto that we chose for this weekend is catch the vision, join the race. In Hebrews 12, we read these words, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's who we're running for. Jesus is our motivation and our encouragement to keep on going. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Tim to come and speak. It's all yours. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. We're going to take just a minute here to move a couple things around. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe I'll go like this. And guys, I'm going to mess you up here for a second, okay? No, you're fine. I'm just going to move it over there. And then we're all good. Excellent. Well, good evening, everyone. How are you doing? You happy you're here? Would, would you rather be, I don't know, stuck on the side of the road somewhere, lost because you didn't bring a map to Killarney with you and your phone doesn't get reception? <laughs> I don't, what are you laughing at? I, I, I don't know who that happened to. We didn't get lost. But being the silly city people that we are, it took off from Winnipeg and... All right, it'll stay there. All right, it'll stay there. It's okay. It's okay. Took off from Winnipeg, didn't bring a map with us because I've... Uh, that's good. That's great. Thank you. Because, of course, I have my smartphone. I forgot that a few months ago I switched from MTS to Bell. There's no Bell out here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, if you watch the show, you know that that's not far off of our usual. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for bringing me out to Killarney. I was telling Chelsea earlier that we've driven by Killarney many times. I think this is our first time to get to stop here, so, uh, so thank you. So I'm going to tell you some stories, introduce you to a little bit of Tim Haig tonight, tell you some stories from The Amazing Race Canada. And I'm very curious, I thought this was a Mennonite church, because you're all sitting like Baptists. <laughs> like, I showered, these guys, I'm sitting behind them, they smell okay. You know, it's, it's... Anyway, well, let's, let's see what we can tell you tonight. I can get my clicker to work. Uh, first of all, see, turn it on. Then it works fabulously. Look at that. 
1964, a little baby was brought into the world in circumstances that are a little different than most people. Baby was not born into a home with a mom and a dad. Matter of fact, there was no home. He was brought into the world in a little hospital on the Gulf of Mexico, surrounded by the searing sands of Texas. Immediately upon birth, the baby was placed into a home, an orphanage, with the hopes of one day being adopted. There was no home, just a bed. There, no, there were no parents, just workers. The mother was a 20-year-old white girl from the state of Iowa in middle America. The father was a 30-something-year-old black man married with children. Needless to say, in Iowa in 1964, this simply wasn't going to work. Being from a Christian family, abortion wasn't an option, but then, of course, neither was keeping the baby or staying at home. She was packed up, sent to a home for young pregnant women in Texas to have and give up her baby. In 1964, America was in turmoil. John Glenn became the first American astronaut to circle the globe while the Beatles hit number one. There we go, there's John. Most of us are old enough to remember him. The Beatles hit number one for the first time in America in 1964, while Muhammad Ali became boxing's heavyweight champion of the world. The Vietnam War was raging, while Walt Disney's Mary Poppins became a hit, and you may remember that President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which abolished racial segregation in the United States. Now, for those of you who may be too young to remember what racial segregation was, it simply meant that white kids didn't go to school with black kids and the blacks didn't eat in the same restaurants as whites. Race riots toured America, and Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize. It was during this time that I was born a half-breed in a very black and white world. Now, what does one do with a biracial baby in 1964? Well, first of all, you put up a free to good home sign and see if you get any bites. But the truth was, there wasn't much of a market for this product, and it didn't have a much of a shelf life. If you left it on the shelf too long, you let it get too old, you'll be stuck with it for good. So literally, almost from birth, I was put on the speaking circuit. I was taken from church to church, put on display, and offered to any willing takers. So I'm told it's not quite as drastic as it sounds, and that my parents and I didn't take that long to find one another. The head of the orphanage had been speaking at a number of churches in the Kansas City area at the time. My parents decided to come one evening. My mom, having now seen this gorgeous, uh, her word, not mine, baby boy, decided that she needed to hear a little bit more about this. So, after, so the long and the short of it was they fell in love with not only the beautiful baby boy that I was, but also the idea of saving me from certain disaster. In our present age where adoptions cost parents tens of thousands of dollars, it may come to, as a surprise to some to learn that I cost my parents nothing. The legal process basically boiled down to a, yeah, we'll take them. They met a judge, signed a few papers, and I had parents. I'm sure that if it, they had been astute enough to ask, they could have made a buck on the transaction. They didn't. So as things turned out, the, my parents got a great deal on their first boy. The orphanage had one less mouth to feed, and, well, I ended up with a great home with fantastic parents, the latter of which will never cease to amaze me. Considering the times... The odds aligned against me, and the fact of me ending up a drug-addled convict long since dead being so very high, I am amazed that I've had the opportunity to pen these words. So having moved from Texas to Kansas, the remainder of my childhood was predominantly normal, aside from the fact that my parents went on to adopt five more biracial babies. Now, keep in mind that is in addition to the three that they had before me. So now, if you're trying to keep track, that's a total of nine. Nine kids, five boys, four girls. 
Words will never be enough to express my love and gratefulness both to my parents and to my birth mother. My birth mother did the best that she could for me in the circumstances that she found herself in. She ensured that I was in a place that would care for me, that would strive to have me adopted. Early on, the orphanage had felt that it would be near impossible to actually get me adopted. Remember, this is 1964. And basically, didn't really try. She got wind of it, tore a strip off of them, told them that if they didn't get their act together and get me a home, that she was going to come back and take me home herself. Why that threat worked, I'm still not sure. But somehow it did, and well, the rest you know. My parents were incredible people, God-fearing individuals, grew up on the farm in Missouri, uh, left school at the ripe old age of grade 8 to go back home, work on the farm. Dad came from 15, Mom from 11. So much for 8 is enough. (laughs) You date yourself by laughing at that. (laughs) You know that. For many years, my mom ran a senior's care home out of our home. This is back in the States. All the while caring for nine children. Dad was a janitor, a part-time pastor. Fact is, we never had much. But we were fed, we were clothed, we were sheltered. And above all, above all, we were loved. We were loved, we were cared for, and we were given a chance at life. Growing up brown, mulatto, mixed, half-breed, the life was littered with the N-word, along with multiple opportunities growing up, trying to figure out my place in the universe. I also had the opportunity to try to figure out from time to time what color my girlfriend should be. For you see, I was too black for the white man's daughter too white for the black man's daughter, and the wrong shade of brown for the Latino man's daughter. (laughs) I'll never forget the father who one time told me, he said, you need to go find a girl of your own kind and date her. And I stood there looking at him, slack-jawed, wondering, well, who is I? (laughs) Because truth of the matter is, my kind just didn't exist. Just weren't around. Yet without fail, each time I came home in tears, either from the playground bully or from the girl who said that her dad said that I couldn't date her, mom and dad were always there, always the same words, filled with passion, anger, and unbending determination, you are our son. We chose you, we love you, God has made you special, and we are so incredibly grateful that he has given you to us. And quite frankly, if those people don't like you, then, son, you don't need them. Go on. Live your life. Live the life that God has given you to the best of your ability and live your life for him. And while the rest of the language expressed in those times were not curses, no, they will, however, not be repeated here. Let's just say that you don't want to cross my mother on this topic. You see, I am her special son. You are not. And if she is at all convinced at 85 that you will do me harm in any way whatsoever, she will not hesitate to do you bodily harm. (laughs) My parents never, ever left me wondering if they loved me. They simply did. Period. Church, I grew up in church my entire life whether it was via the womb when my birth mom was attending church at the girls' home or whether it was on church to church Sunday after Sunday on the Let's Adopt a Baby show. I have been in church all my life. I am no stranger to the pulpit. (laughs) I left my first church when the pastor came to our house to inform my parents that they had made a grievous error in adopting this black baby. Well, they took offense to his theology, and we moved on. We do a little quick fast-forward. You find me at 18 years old sitting in Bible school. I'm sitting next to this cute, blonde, blue-eyed Canadian. The very first day of school, we were set alphabetically. She was an F. I was an H. Thank God there were no Gs. Married at ages 20 and 21. I won't tell you who's older. She is. (laughs) 
We've been together just shy of three decades. God has blessed us with a wild ride, a fabulous marriage, wonderful friendship. She remains my best friend. We have been blessed with four wonderful children and a daughter-in-law and many, many amazing stories to tell along the way. In September of 1989, we made a move to Winnipeg from Kansas. In my mind, that was going to be a two- to three-year move. We had kind of run out of space and place in Kansas City. We needed a change of scenery, needed to do something different. Thought we would move to Winnipeg to be closer to her folks for a while. In my mind, that was going to be two or three years. We'd move on, find something new to do, right? Well, two years turned into three, three turned into five, five turned into 25. Winnipeg became home. Canada became my adopted, my adopted country, and this is where we are. Once I got past the bone-aching chill of living here, <laughs> I finally figured out it's called North Face or Canada Goose. <laughs> Once I got past the cold, adjusted to the culture that was so much like Kansas City and yet so drastically different, I said we settled into a normal life of work and having babies. Well, that is until August of 2010. In August of 2010, I was sitting in my kitchen reading the Saturday morning paper, as I am often wont to do, when a thought crept into my consciousness that my left big toe is twitching. I'm sitting there reading the paper, and if you can imagine, you do one of these, right? Yeah, and by golly, my left big toe is twitching. Now, we got any nurses in the crowd? No? Am I the only one? Well, this is what a nurse does in this moment. Nurse immediately goes into assessment mode. Do a quick head to toe, and I'm thinking I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. The kids are okay. The job's not too bad. The wife's not mad at me today. All the guys laugh. (laughs) If there's no psychological reason for me to be twitching, it must be physiological. If it's physiological, it's very likely to be neurological. If it's neurological, it has to either be Parkinson's or MS. My very next thought was, oh, crap. And my very next thought was, dear God, don't let it be MS. That was literally the first five minutes of my walk with Parkinson's disease. The month was August. We had just crossed our 25th wedding anniversary. That October, we had planned a three-week trip to Europe, traveling around. So I did what any good husband would do. What did I do, guys? Nothing. (laughs) I kept my mouth shut. Right? That's what we do. It's the wrong thing to do, but that's what we do. Because I thought to myself, I might be wrong. Might, might relax, might settle down, might be okay. We'll get to Spain or, you know, to Greece or to somewhere. We'll relax and it'll, it'll just go away. It'll be all wrong. Well, what I didn't know then that I do know now is that any kind of stress, good, bad, or indifferent, will make your Parkinson's symptoms worse. And my good wife being in the mood to relive our childhood we had decided to backpack across Europe. We each took a backpack. We booked our first hotel and our last hotel for three weeks, and we wung it, winged it, day at a time from there on out. Now, I'm a little type A. I'm a little more anal than that, and I wanted to have a few things in play, but I didn't. So, you know, see, there's my Parkinson's. That's what happens when you don't have anything booked along the way or when you... (laughs) Or when you leave your map at home and you're sitting on the side of the road. Needless to say, my symptoms got worse. So somewhere along the way, I break down and I tell her what's going on, what's in my head. And being the strong, determined German woman that she is, she said, you know what? Let's just roll with it. You're fine. We're fine. We'll have a great holiday. We'll get home. We'll look after it. We had a great holiday. Get home, sit down with my GP, who had been my doctor for years and years and years. He and I go into a short, 
conversation, but my 30 minutes with him just simply discussed the fact that I likely have young onset Parkinson's disease. But he said, just to be on the safe side, we'll get you in front of a neurologist, we'll do a bunch of tests, we'll make sure that we're right. We do that, go meet my, my new buddy in the world, Andy Boris, Dr. Andy Boris, and he diagnoses me in February of 2011 with young onset Parkinson's disease. To say that I was unhappy would be the understatement of the year. I was shaken, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, that one's got a fuse to it. <laughs> I was scared, mildly angry, but mostly scared. You see, I'd nursed lots of people with Parkinson's by this time. I'd been nursing for 18 years. My dad had Parkinson's. I knew very well what I was in for, and this is not a road that I wanted to walk. Now, how many of you know what Parkinson's disease is? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't, I'm going to give you a definition. There's going to be a quick quiz, so whoever's sitting close to me better be ready. <laughs> Parkinson's disease is a progressive neurodegenerative d- disease that results in the decreased production of dopamine in the substantia nigra portion of the brain. Ready? Go, Abraham. I warned you. <laughs> right over your head, eh? Just sailed right by. <laughs> okay, one more time. Ready? Par- Parkinson's is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that results in the decreased production of dopamine in the substantia nigra portion of the brain. It's okay. Got it. Okay, stand up, repeat. No, no. <laughs> we'll break it down. It is a progressive, it will get worse kind of disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease. It means it's a a nerve disease of the brain that if you were to take and look right down through the center of my head, through here, look right straight through here, you won't find much, (laughs) but you will find the thalamus, and right next door to the thalamus is a little place called the substantia nigra. The substantia nigra is responsible for producing a a chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is necessary for movement. So when you see this, when that tremor kicks in, there we go, I get it it going there for you. you By the time that starts, my little substantia nigra has stopped producing about 80% of the dopamine that I need to move properly. So then as it gets worse... It does this wonderful juxtaposition where it goes from making you shaky, shaky, shaky to not being able to move at all, which makes you off balance. We tend to fall, break things like hips, end up in the hospital, get pneumonia, and die. It's a wonderful disease. (laughs) It eventually robs us of our ability to care for ourselves, to work, or to live a normal life. So upon diagnosis, I did what many people will do, and that is get depressed. Stop running, stop cycling, stop doing the things that I know I should do to look after myself, get all down in the dumps, and oh, woe is me, and God, why, why, why? About a year later, start coming around to my senses, and it's like, hey, this is not you. This is not the way you live. It's not typical that you roll over and die with things. And so I got up got going again. And I said, there's three ways in which I can probably look at this thing. So one, I can try to treat it like it's benign, like it doesn't matter, like it just doesn't matter and just go on. Well, you know, I mean, look at that. You know, it's like that three-year-old kid that grabs your coat and just tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs until you go, well, you don't have that option with Parkinson's. (laughs) It just never goes away. My biggest thing that I deal with is fatigue. If I get overly tired, if I don't look after myself well and keep rested, I'm an emotional basket case on top of the tremor. So it's not benign. I can't just ignore it. It has to be dealt with in very real ways on a daily basis. I decided it could be a curse. I could choose to live under it. I could choose to say, okay, this gets my life. Let it have my job, my wife, my kids, my existence, and say, oh, woe is me, and why does God do this to me, and shake my fist at God, and, and let it consume me and define me. I decided in the end that just didn't sound that fun. 
So if it's not benign, and if it's not a curse to my simple way of thinking, it had to be a blessing. There had to be something in this that is good for me as well as for those around me. And I realize that that may seem overly simplistic, but quite frankly, I'm not sure how, how else to approach it. The fact is, Parkinson's can't have me. It can't have my life. It can't have who I am. It will, over time, take parts of me. There are things today that I cannot do that I used to be able to do. But I will not give it everything. And anything that it does get, it is going to have to come rip out of my hands. Because at 49, almost to be 50, I'm young enough to still kick pretty good. So you see, while it is progressive, it will get worse with time, I'm still one of the healthiest people I know with the disease. While it will one day be debilitating, today it's not. While one day it may take my life, today I am very much alive and well. I made a decision at one point that although I may have Parkinson's, it cannot have me. I choose to live. I choose to live today. I choose to live my best. I choose to live the life that I was given the opportunity to live. That after all that mom and dad sacrificed, all that my birth mom did to see that I was given a chance in life, I am not going to squander it simply in the face of a diagnosis. Thus, I got myself off the couch that year, and I ran a triathlon. I don't think I'd still get into that now. <laughs> Looks not bad for one, eh? I continued to work out, doing things like, oh, I'm ahead of myself, doing things like P90X, running, all the while having no idea that just over the horizon lay the Amazing Race Canada. See, my dear wife, Cheryl, she's a bit of a fanatic when it comes to the Amazing Race in general. She has watched every single episode of the American one, some of them multiple times. And she always said to me, she said, if it ever comes to Canada, we're going. We're applying. And like a good husband, I said, yes, dear. <laughs> All the while thinking, whatever. I know no one who's won the lottery. <laughs> Nobody gets on to a reality television show. Needless to say, when the uh, show showed up, she said, we're applying. I said, yes, dear. She goes off. She does her due diligence, finds out that you have to give them five weeks of your life, completely away from home, completely cut off. She comes back and says, we can't do this. I said, yes, dear. See, at the time, our twins, we have 24-year-old, 20-year-old, now 16-year-old twins. The twins at the time had just turned 15. No one in their right mind goes away for five weeks and leaves their 15-year-old twins at home alone. So, of course, we can't do this. I said, okay. She says, however, you and Tim Jr. can. What are, you, what, what are you talking about? And thus ensues this ridiculous conversation. Okay, if you can imagine, we're sitting in the kitchen arguing over who's going to apply for the Amazing Race Canada with our son. Neither one of us are going to get on. So what's this argument about? But this is what she says to me. She says, okay, first of all, they're going to love the father-son thing. We know they like that. Okay, fine. So second of all, you'll look great on television. Well, you do have a point there. They will love the Tim and Tim, and they will love your Parkinson's. I said, well, now I'm a little offended. What do you mean by that? Well, they've done the amputations. They've done the cancers. They've done the this. They've done the that. But they have never, ever done Parkinson's. Well, you know the, the end of the story. The fact is, we made it onto the show. We applied got on to season one. And despite running the kind of race that we did, we somehow managed to win it. And the fact is, the Amazing Race Canada is nothing short of the icing on the cake of an already blessed life. To have the beginning that I 
that I had had in life and to make it to the point that I have was beyond most people's wildest dreams for me to start with. And now to actually end up on The Amazing Race and having won the thing was absolutely unbelievable. And we had the opportunity to race across Canada from coast to coast to coast, experiencing firsthand the stunning beauty of this great nation, and we will forever be so thankful for that. But we ran the classic underdog race. Right from the start, we struggled. How many of you got to see the show? A few hands. We're in church or among friends. How many of you didn't? Go ahead. Put your hand up so it's safe. It's safe. I just have one question. What do you do with your life? It was the number one rated television show in all of Canada, like from the beginning of time. Do you remember black and white? Since then. We somehow won the doggone thing. It's still on YouTube, by the way. Get a 12-year-old to look it up for you, and you can watch it. (laughs) But if you didn't get to watch it, we were chronically behind. We struggled. We made mistakes. We got lost over and over. And thus, when I say we got lost coming here, it's just typical. In legs three and six, we came in last Typically on the show, if you come in last, you get eliminated, you're kicked off the island. But both of those rounds were non-elimination rounds. We were saved. We were the first team in franchise history of all 20-some, almost 30 episodes that's ever been played, aired in North America. We are the first team to ever hit both non-elimination legs and still come back and win the whole thing. We were the underdogs the dark horse, the come-from-behind Cinderella story that no one expected to happen. Nothing was expected as the Thames as we came to be called. We continually had to persevere just to overcome our own mistakes, let alone the hindrances that my Parkinson's put up. If you watch the race, you may recall that we were directionally challenged often. In Kelowna, we got lost. In Nunavut, we got lost. In Regina, we got lost. In Quebec City, we got lost. Ladies and gentlemen, we were in Cape Spear, Newfoundland. There were four teams left. We were effectively in the finals, running for the semis. We were in third position. All we had to do was get to the mat, and we were racing for half a million dollars in prize money, and we got In the Toronto Zoo, the Tims did in an hour and a half what the other two teams managed to get done in 15 minutes because we got lost. No one ever expected us to survive, let alone succeed. Yet leg after leg, we persevered. We were determined to do our best until we could go no further. And in the end, our best produce this. It's rock and roll, baby. Father and son, Tim and Tim Jr. You got it, Dad. Here we go. Started the race with the added challenge of Tim Sr.'s Parkinson's. That diagnosis doesn't have to define your life. This guy's my hero right here. I'm really proud of him. Yeah! Leg after leg, Tim Sr. pushed himself beyond anyone's expectations. You can do more than you think you can. You just have to be willing to try. Good fortune smiled on the Tim. This is a non-elimination round? No. Not once, but twice. You are still in this race. (laughs) More than anyone, the Tims know it's now or never. Five years from now, I won't have the physical capability to do this race. We have to win. Won't have a second shot.
Tim Sr., Tim Jr., you guys have won two 2014 Corvette Stingrays, executive first-class travel for a year from Air Canada to anywhere in the world, and a quarter of a million dollars. My dad has completely blown every expectation of him out of the water. Parkinson's isn't supposed to let you do half the things that he's done in this race. And he not only did them, he kicked their butt, man. Somehow I... Thank you. Somehow I never get tired of watching that. But who would have ever thought that a little half-breed baby boy born in Robstown, Texas, on the Gulf of Mexico in 1964 to a 20-year-old white girl pregnant by a 30-something-year-old married black man would ever make that? No one. No one. The simple answer is that very few expected success from me personally, just like very few expected us a win out of us on the show. The odds were stacked against me at birth, and a life of crime, drugs, and jail would have surprised very few. The odds were stacked against us on the race. Just like in life, we chose to persevere, to take the hand that we had been dealt and do the best we could with it. Throughout the race, I struggled with many challenges, not the least of all was my Parkinson's. Yet we persevered. As a kid growing up, I struggled with acceptance, yet persevered. Parkinson's presents daily struggles, yet I persevere. Perseverance is a great big long word that we don't like to use very often anymore because it's always linked to something hard, something bad. But it means simply this, to continue on in the course of action even in the face of difficulty, with little or no evidence of success. To carry on in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty, with little or no evidence of success. If you Google that word, you will find that definition, and alongside it, you will find the faces of the Thames. Because throughout the course of the race, we decided we will carry on, even in the face of difficulty with little or no evidence of success. And never did we ever give you any reason to believe that we would win. In leg six, a little story for you. It was a second non-elimination leg. Every week throughout the course of the race, we would have what we called a viewing party. We'd get a bunch of friends and family together, and we'd watch the show together. Leg six, we're coming in last once again. We're coming to the map there in Quebec City, and we're getting the loser clap. You ever heard the loser clap? If you know it, you can do it with me. It's that, way to go, boys. Good job, boys. You know, you're from Manitoba. We'll cheer for you, boys. We didn't really expect you to win anyway, but good job. We're getting the loser clap. But for one brief moment in time, four people, me, Cheryl, my son, Tim Jr., and his wife, Kara, we stood there like gods because we knew the future. We knew that not only was this a non-elimination leg, we knew that we went on to win the whole thing. And here's the takeaway. There were many, many times throughout the course of the race that we could have given in to that loser clap that played over and over again. How are you ever going to catch up? How are you ever going to do better? How will you ever pr not make fools of yourselves on national television? Many, many times my parents were told, why would you adopt a half-breed baby? You're white. He's black. Why would you do that? Their pastor came to their house and said, you're making a mistake. If we listen to the loser clap that plays over and over, look at the things that I would have lost had I listened to it on the race, had my parents listened to it then and there.
we would have forfeited a championship that had our name on it. They would have given away the life that God wanted me to have. And who knows where I would have ended up. So where does all of this leave me as an individual? Well, it leaves me, A, wanting to live my best, to first of all acknowledge who I am. I am not a half-breed. I am the first of all the son of Max and Geneva Haig, the son of Eleanor Burstetta. I am a rather handsome American, Canadian, black, white, Yeah, it gets convoluted after a while. (laughs) But it all works somehow. I just say German chocolate. (laughs) And it's all wrapped up in a profound sense of identity in my faith in Jesus Christ. That at the end of the day, not only have I been adopted physically on this earth, but I have been adopted by the King of Kings who calls me his own. And therein I gain the strength to live my best and then have the desire to reach out and help others live their best. Looking out over the course of my life, I have been blessed more with, any, with more than any one man should ever be blessed within any five lifetimes. And thus I am compelled, I am compelled help others live their best. I am moved by the belief that winning the Amazing Race Canada has to be about more than a couple of Corvettes, a bunch of money, and some trips. It has to go beyond that. Thus, we spend lots of time with the Parkinson Society of Canada, reaching out, trying to help people with the disease live better. But our passion over the last couple of years, number of years has become compassion, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. There is a number of things that compassion does for me. Number one, it gets me out of my own head. And it allows me to see that there are people who are worse off than me, that I have it awfully good compared to the vast majority of people in this world. In December of 2001, Cheryl and I began sponsoring our first child. Her name is Erlise. Uh, Sorry, his name is Eric. He was number one. He lives in Rwanda. At the time, we had four small children at home and only one income, but we felt compelled by God to give back to someone less fortunate than ourselves. We didn't start this after I ran the race. We started this a very long time ago. I chose to support Eric in Rwanda because of an, un, an unsaved, non-Christian, non-believing friend of mine who had come out of Rwanda, who had come out of the war, and is still angry with God. We had no idea how this decision to sponsor children would so completely wreck our lives in such a fabulous way. In 2004, we took up the sponsorship of our second child, Arlise. Arlise lives in Colombia. And we have had the wonderful opportunity to watch these children grow up with our own over time. This past September, our family had the opportunity to travel to Colombia to meet Arlise, who is now 17. We started sponsoring her when she was six years old. We have watched her grow up over these past 11 years and there is absolutely no words to describe the joy that we have experienced in actually having the opportunity to meet her. She is a beautiful, smart, sassy, she fits right in, <laughs> young woman who loves Jesus and has a passion to become a, do- a doctor one day. Here's a little bit of the story of our time with our lease in Colombia. Hi, you may recognize me as Tim Sr. from one of the Tims from The Amazing Race Canada season number one. We're really excited to be with you today and tell you about the experiences that we've had with Compassion Canada here in Cartagena, Colombia. My wife Cheryl and I have been traveling around and are very excited to show you some of the things we've experienced. This week Cheryl and I had the opportunity to travel around rural Colombia and visit, first of all, with Anna Patrice. 
Anna Patrice lives in a home with uh, bamboo walls, a thatched roof, a mud floor. When it rains, the water runs in from the street into the house. And it's absolutely unbelievable the crushing poverty that the, this individual lives in with her four children. Yet the joy and contentment that we experienced in this house was absolutely amazing. The fact that a sponsor from North America was able to provide extra funds and give the sponsored child a brand new bed created more joy and happiness than you can ever begin to imagine. This week we also had a home visit in a little girl named Sylvana's house. Um, her mother and father greeted us. The mother is just quite young, 20, and the father is 27. And uh, they lovingly showed us through their two-room house. And it was so impressive to me how they were so joyful to show us what they had and, and how they were living their life. And they were so thankful for what Compassion was doing in, in their life. And I was impressed by how Compassion has come alongside this young couple and just given them the extra little bit of resources that they need to, to succeed in life. Cheryl and I this week had the opportunity to meet our Colombian daughter, Erlise, who we've been sponsoring since she was six years old. That's 11 years now for us. She's 17 years old. And when we first started sponsoring our lease, we really didn't know what we were getting into. We felt that it was the right thing to do. So we started sending money to Compassion once a month. And words cannot begin to describe to you the absolute joy that we felt when our lease ran into our arms this week, told us how much she loved us, thanked us over and over again for all the good things that we've been able to provide for her through that small sponsorship money month after month. Um, it was heartbreaking. We were overjoyed. Literally, we cannot begin to describe to you how much has come out of this seemingly small gesture that we give to our lease every month. Eleven years ago, Cheryl and I decided to do something that we thought was pretty simple. But in actual fact, it has radically affected our lease's life. I cannot begin to describe to you how very real, how evident, how strong her faith in Jesus Christ is, and that is all because we made a decision to invest in her world month after month. She's been encouraged to attend church, to attend the project where she's learned about Jesus, and alongside that has been provided with food, clothing, and shelter, and education to help her grow as a young woman. I encourage you to support us child today. To say that we as a family were moved by our meeting our lease would be the understatement of the year. Of all that God has brought into my life this past year, this was the highlight. On this trip, poverty became personal. It wrapped its arms around my neck and in broken English repeated over and over again, I love you. Thank you. At the end of our day together with our lease, our hearts were broken. You see, we had now seen the mud floors, the bamboo walls, the thatched roofs, the crushing poverty that we were sending our girl back to, and we were all but overwhelmed. We weren't quite sure what to do. Then our oldest daughter reminded us. She said, Dad, God has our lease right where he needs her. And our lease reminded us of all the good that had come from our sponsorship year after year, month after month. And we have had the opportunity to see that our sponsorship has changed her life. I want to encourage you to join our family in sponsoring children. For now, God has written on our names on the hearts of four children, Elise in Colombia, Eric in Rwanda, Marcella in Honduras, and Marvin in Kenya. But God has also written your name on the heart of a child somewhere as well. I want to encourage you to come see us afterwards to meet the life that you will change forever. See, my amazing race has not ended. In many ways, it's just begun. But I need your help in completing our next challenge. There are children just like Arlise 
just like me, who simply need a chance to live their best. We may not fix everything in their world, but we can fix some, and they need us to help them take that next step. My birth mom, my parents, they changed my life forever when they chose to give me a chance. If there was anything in this world I could do, it would be to convince you to give a kid somewhere in the world a chance to believe that you can make a difference in their life and that just because they were born in the wrong place at the wrong time under the wrong circumstances, that they too can win their personal race. Our challenge is to sponsor as many kids as possible. Out of all that we have been given, out of all that we have been blessed with, to give back a little bit, 41 bucks a month, so that a kid somewhere who very few care about will have a shot at life. There is nothing you could do in a child's life this Christmas that would change their life more than to start sponsoring them. Where would Tim Sr. be without his birth mom and his parents? Where would Erlise be without me? Where will your sponsored child wind up without you? I need you to join us in our race and sponsor your child today. I've brought a bunch of packets with me. They look like this. They represent real kids, flesh and blood, who need your help today. I want to encourage you that afterwards, see Cheryl at the back table. She'll help you pick out a kid. If you want to stay around and talk to me, if you want to take a picture, get an autograph, more than happy to do that. But please come talk to us about some kids. From a small hospital in a dusty little town in Texas to the Amazing Race Canada, who would have ever dreamt that that baby would have such an amazing life? That life happened only because someone chose to invest in me and give me a chance to live my best. If there's any joy, if there is any good in anything that I've shared with you tonight, if there's any good, if there's any joy that God has brought into your life, Come see us. Help me in my race to pass forward the blessing that God has given me by sponsoring a child. Thank you for letting me share a bit of my story. I could go on for hours. There's so much fun to talk about. It's been a pleasure to be in Killarney. God bless you, and thank you so very much.